Gospel of John, what a great gospel, eh? Just profound truths that make such an impact on our lives. And I've entitled this message today, we're going to try and do from verse 1 through 38, so we're going to try and do nearly all the chapter. I've called the message the power of a story. The power of a story. Let's read John 9, verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the words of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me whilst it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when he, when he, Jesus, made the mud and opened up his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, but he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been born blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that I was born blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, 
we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why? This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if one is a worshipper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is I who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, there is great power in the gospel. There is great power in encountering the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so, Lord, as we review this man's story, would you open our eyes afresh to our story? And would you help us to see why John has placed this here with such precision and such clarity and such meaning? Because what a gospel, what a gospel this truly is. Amen. Good stories can and do have such a powerful and compelling effect on our lives, don't they? That's one of the things that's in common with all good stories. They always have a powerful and compelling effect on our lives. And so a few weeks ago, I told you the story of the two boys, the two brothers that were playing on the sandbanks of the Mississippi. The mum couldn't find them. They got search and rescue in and eventually they found just the the head of the younger brother sitting above the sand. They'd been playing and the sand had gone under. And when they started to peel the sand away from the younger brother, he started to cry and started to speak. They said, where is your older brother? And with tears in his eyes, he simply said, I'm standing on his shoulders. And the younger brother had given it, the older brother had given his life to hold the younger brother up. You know, we hear those types of stories and it affects us, right? It compels us. We, we feel for the, for the mother and what she must have been going through in, in that time. We're proud in the right sense of the older brother, just thinking, what courage, what boldness, what grace to do that for the younger brother. We, we're engaged with the story because it compels us and has a powerful effect on it. A few months ago, I also told the story of John Harper, the hero of the Titanic. 1,528 people went into the water as the Titanic began to sink. Only six survived, but one that died was John Harper. He was literally the hero of the Titanic. He could have happily gone with his six-year-old daughter, Nina. He was a widower, so he could have easily got on one of the safety vessels, but he didn't. He kissed his beloved Nina and said, one day I will see you again and then turned and ran back onto the Titanic and started to say, woman and children and unsaved into the lifeboats. He dived into the water after all the people as the boat started to sink. And one of the individuals that survived just tells the story of how this man, John Harper, was just swimming from one person to the next, seeking to tell them about Jesus. One young boy who he swam to said, I don't believe in Jesus. At which point Mr. Harper took off his own life jacket and gave it to this boy and said, then you need this more than I. 
and went swimming onto somebody else. Well, that young boy was one of the six survivors that then told of how he watched Mr. Harper going around telling people about Jesus and the last thing that he heard him shout before he went under the water was believe in the Lord named Jesus and you will be saved. And you hear that and you think, I want to be like John Harper. I want to be that type of guy. I want to exhibit that type of courage in my life. The story itself, the true narrative, has a powerful and compelling effect on our lives, doesn't it? That's what true stories do. They can and do have such a powerful and compelling effect on our lives. And it is because of that truth that John now puts this story here for us in John chapter 9. This good story. This powerful and compelling story of what it really looks like to encounter the light of the world. So you remember in chapter 8, we get introduced to the theology, if you will. We get introduced to Jesus as he stands the day after the Feast of Booths, standing right by the big torches that would have been illustrating the light of the world, how God guided them in the wilderness as the light. He stands underneath these torches and he declares to everybody that will listen in the treasury, I'm the light of the world. The one that that points back to was, was me. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one who's come as the light to take care of your sin and to die in your place so that you may have life and that in abundance. In a theological way, we're introduced to the fact that Jesus is the light of the world. Well, In John chapter 9 then, through a very well-crafted true story, John says, you know what? You know what it looks like to then encounter the light of the world? I'll tell you what it looks like. Let me tell you about this blind man that he encountered as he went running out of the temple. And when seen correctly, what a powerful and glorious story this truly is. I just have two points this morning. Number one, this story compels, and it does. This story has a profound, compelling effect on our lives. So let's just look at it together. We start with a man born blind. Now, we don't know much about this fella. In fact, we know very, very little. He's not been introduced to us before in the Gospels. We don't really see him anywhere else. But we know what we need to know. John tells us exactly enough. And what he tells us is that this man is blind. He has been blind from birth. And accordingly then, if we were Jews, if we understood this time, we would realize that that means this man is completely helpless. You see, there's no welfare state, no hostels, no soup kitchens giving anything out to this guy. He is in an utter, blind, helpless state. Accordingly, then, he's a beggar. That's how he's trying to survive. And he decides to be a beggar in the temple. Seems like a good place, particularly by the treasury. All these Jews are already being generous, so, you know, hopefully they're already carrying money. So hopefully if I can interact with them on the way in as a blind beggar, I've got a chance of somebody helping me in some way. And so everybody knew this guy. He was a well-known guy. He was like a, a homeless person as you, that you may walk past all the time. You just know him, you're looking for him, particularly the Spalding and Lincolnshire where I grew up. There were specific people there all the time. And so everybody knew who they were. That, that's what this guy's like. He's blind, blind from birth. He's begging. Every, everybody knows him. He's somebody that people know. And in verse 2 then, the Savior's gaze falls on him. Well, the disciples notice that. They notice that Jesus is looking at him, and so they ask him a question. They say in verse 2, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? See, that can sound really weird. 
But it's not so weird because in, in their wrong tradition and their wrong understanding, they were convinced in the rabbi teaching at that time that specific suffering must come from specific sin. And so what they're saying to him is, you know what, who sinned then? Was it, was it prenatal or was it parental? And that, they were really only the, their only two options. So they misunderstood and misinterpreted scripture. So they, they're really saying, well, okay, did he do this then himself before he was born, prenatal sin? Genesis 4 verse 47, we read the word sin lieth at the door. That has nothing to do with prenatal sin. They thought it did. They thought that a baby could sin in the womb. And because of sinning behind the door, if you sinned, well, when you came out, there would be suffering. So they were convinced that maybe this guy sinned in the womb. Is that what he did? And that that's why he's been born blind? Or is it that his parents sinned? A wrong understanding of Exodus chapter 20 where God talks about visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the third and fourth generation. They thought, is that what's happened? Did his dad sin? And that's why he's gone blind? Well, Jesus explains to them, you know what, guys? Thanks for playing. But neither. Neither are true. Neither incident is actually valid. It doesn't work like that. In fact, to be honest, this man was born blind because I allowed it to be so. For my glory and his good. Now, is there divine providence and mystery involved in that? Oh, yeah. Because I hear that and I think, hang on, how does, how does that work? There's mystery involved in that. There are things that as Christians we have to look on and say, you know what, such things are too lofty for me to attain. I don't, I don't know. But where there is no mystery for the Jews or indeed for us is what happened then as Jesus, the light of the world, now begins to encounter this blind beggar. Because God, through Jesus, was now going to change this man's life. So he begins to walk over to this man. The disciples are looking on thinking, hey, what's he going to do? Is he just going to give him some money? He had no intention to give him some money. He had an intention to give him something far greater. He spits on the ground and makes mud with his saliva. Why does he do that? No idea. It doesn't tell you anywhere else, but it's a cool thing to do. He then anoints this man's eyes with mud. He sticks the, the putty that he makes into this man's eyes and he says, you need now to go... And to wash off at the Pool of Siloam. Do you remember the Pool of Siloam? It's the very place that uh, during the feast, when they're doing the water, the priests go and they take it from the Pool of Siloam. And they come back and as they're pouring it out, it's then that Jesus said, if anyone who is thirsty, remember that? That's the Pool of Siloam, same pool. He's saying, you need to go to that pool and wash out the mud. And as you do, something's going to happen. Well, this, this guy did exactly that. He goes over to the pool. He washes and then something incredible happens. He who was once blind can now see. This man who is helpless, this man that was begging for people just to try and survive, this man who was utterly helpless in every single way, blind, he had never seen color, he had never seen trees, he had never seen people. All he had done every day was heard people passing, heard people passing and then asking them for money. He was completely and utterly blind, but in a moment his eyes were healed and he could see. His life was dramatically about to change. His whole life, everything he's ever known in this moment has dramatically changed as he looks out on the world. He has encountered the light of the world and his life has been instantly and completely turned upside down. Grace has called this man's name. And as a profound result, with immediate effect, even though this man's faith is somewhat embryonic, 
it already begins to have a profound effect on what comes after. Because having had his name called and having now seen, there are incredible effects that start to be seen in this man's life, having encountered the light of the world. And so verses 8 through 12, we see an abandon in proclamation. Everybody knows this man. And so they're saying to him, hang on, you're the guy who was here this morning begging. You're the blind beggar. What, what are you doing? How do you see? Some people are looking on and saying, that can't, be, that can't be him. I mean, it does look like him, but it can't be him. And other people say, no, it is him. It hit. What, what's happened? And this man with just absolute abandon and proclamation is telling everybody that he's ever met, I am that man. I was blind, but now I see. You want to know how? I met Jesus. I met the man called Jesus. No one's had to teach this man, okay? This man hasn't been on how to share your faith in six easy steps. No, one, no one's done that. This man just knows his life has been dramatically changed. And so he's telling everybody. There's loads of things as they start talking to him. And he just says, I don't know. I don't know. I, no, don't know that. But I do know this. I was blind, but now I can see. And he is telling everybody with a profound abandon in proclamation. Verse 13 through 34, then we see an abandon in pursuit. Because a hard interrogation occurs now for this man conducted by the Pharisees. See, this is not good for the Pharisees. Having a blind man that everybody knows, that can now see, and he's telling everybody that Jesus changed his life, this is not good. This will not be good for their reputation. And so they start to say to this man, hang on, hang on. Okay, we do know you are blind and easy. Who did this to you? What has gone on? And this would be incredibly intimidating. This would be the the chief Pharisees. They'd be there in their robes. They would be there more likely in a mob, in a long line, and they'd be saying, right, you, next, come here. It would be very intimidating. And they start to interview this guy as if to say, what are you saying? What on earth do you think is going on here? Who are you saying has done this? Who are you saying you are? What has taken place? It is a hard interrogation, all built upon the premise of, Who are you saying he is? That was their issue. They want to trap Jesus. We already know from chapters before they want to kill Jesus. They don't want this blind beggar now telling everybody about Jesus, having seen the effect of Jesus. So they start to say to this man, who do you say he is? Well, they interview the parents. And they say, is this your boy? Correct, he is. Um, What's happened to him? Who healed him? Well, instantly they say, Jesus. No, they don't. Actually, they say, oh, better ask him yourself. You think, why, why is that? Well, it's because they are utterly freaked out that if they actually say that Jesus, the Son of God, this Messiah, has healed their son, they will be excommunicated. That's what we see from verse 22 onwards. What they are saying is that anybody now who is saying that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, you will be excommunicated. You will be, in effect, put out of the church... So minimally, you'll be put out of the church, which means all fellowship will stop here. To a Jew, this is horrific. No longer allowed to come to ceremonies. No longer to be be part of the covenant people. We will put you out of the church. That's minimally. What many scholars believe then is as a result of that, Jews would stop relating to you. They wouldn't want to live near you. They wouldn't want to trade with you. So this would be a full-on excommunication to be, to be declaring that Jesus is the Christ would have massive consequences. So the parents say, yeah, thanks for asking. I don't know. Ask him. 
Well, he just rocks up with this abandoned in pursuit and says, you want to know who? I'll tell you, Jesus. Jesus has just changed my life. I was blind, but now I can see. I've met this guy who must clearly have come from God. He's clearly been sent from God. He must be Jesus, the Messiah. There is an utter abandon in pursuit, even in this embryonic faith form. He understands that I don't get it, but I think, I think Jesus will care for me for the rest of my life. I can trust him. He's already healed my blindness. What can I not trust him for? So he tells them straight out. I'll tell you who it was. It was Jesus. He has a little dig at them every now and again. has a little bit of a giggle with them. They don't see the funny side. So they throw him out. You are excommunicated. You are removed from our premise and all the consequences that go with that. Well, this guy, I just think so beautifully, as he leaves the temple, having been probably thrown out by the Pharisees, there is one there to meet him again. For his abandon and pursuit would not be unwarranted. Because then we read of a second encounter in verse 34. It says, and they cast him out. This is what happened then. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Truth is, he already has a strong inkling that I think you're him. But he's just confirming. Jesus said to him, you have seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you. At which point he said, Lord, I believe. I completely believe. I've already seen how you have healed my blindness and given me sight. Lord, I believe. And at that point, he worshipped him. That comes the third effect of encountering Jesus Christ, namely an abandon in praise. He has had his life dramatically changed by Jesus. He believes that Jesus is the Messiah. And as Jesus confirms that to him, that yes, I indeed am him. Nobody says to this guy, okay, well, look, we're going to crank up a few songs if you wouldn't mind joining in. He's just, I don't need no music. I'm in. He abandons himself in worship before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Because he's amazed that Jesus has changed his life. Jesus has stopped for one. This man has encountered the light of the world. His life has changed. So an abandon in praise, an abandon in proclamation, an abandon in pursuit. You know, when grace calls your name and you encounter the light of the world, it changes everything, doesn't it? When grace calls your name and the light of the world comes into your life through the gospel, when he breaks in, everything changes. And that's what's happened to this man. He was blind, but now he can see. He's met the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's encountered the light of the world. And so an abandoned in proclamation, an abandoned in pursuit, an abandoned in praise is his story. It has a profound effect on his life, having encountered the Savior. And so this story compels. Seen correctly as to what it's illustrating, I think it should have a compelling effect. It's such a great picture of what it looks like to encounter the light of the world, isn't it? It's compelling. You hear it and you think, yeah. And I can see by some of your faces as I've been talking, like, yeah. That's what it does. It has a compelling effect on our lives. It, it also has a compelling effect, I think, if we're perceptive as we look back on our own stories. Because we were the blind guy. This is true narrative. This actually happened, but 
in an illustrative way, he's probably he's helping us see that that was you. You were blind. You were helpless. Yet he came after you. He walked into your life and he turned your life upside down. He changed you in an absolute moment. Had you been looking for him? Not really. You'd just been begging. He was looking for you. And he came after you. It is a dramatically compelling story. This story compels. But here's the second thing that I think it also does that I want to spend the rest of our time on. This story also confronts. Yes, it compels, but it, it, it confronts. It has a confronting effect on our lives. And it's this side of the story, this secondary effect, that I want us to linger on and unpack for the remainder of our time. You see, for many, this story will have a compelling effect. It will. You'll look at it and you'll think, yes, Jesus is amazing. And I want those effects to, to be the marks of my life. Thank you, Lord. It will have a compelling effect. But for some, if you're honest, this story has a confronting effect on you. It confronts you. Not in a bad way. Not in an aggressive way. But I think, pastorally speaking, I think it has a confronting effect in this way. Because if you're honest, as you encounter this story, there's a wondering and a questioning often with sadness and disappointment as to why you no longer feel this way about your great salvation. Why you don't feel an abandon in proclamation, an abandon in pursuit, an abandon in praise like this guy does. And so you inhabit and see this guy in the story and instead of compelling, it confronts. Maybe you'll look back on a time in your life where you remember where you were passionate about Jesus. You just wanted to sell everything you ever had and give it all up for Jesus. And you remember those days with such fondness and you look back, but the older you've got, you look back to that day. I wonder why that's not the case anymore. Why why does it compel you in the same way now? Why has your life changed so much? Maybe for others, maybe you've never had that day. Maybe you've grown up in a Christian home. You've never then had a moment where you've realized, I'd give my whole life up for Jesus. This is all I want to do. And so you look at this man and he confronts you because you think, I don't think I've ever been like that. I want to be like that, but I don't think I've ever really been like that. As I've prepared this message this week, it is you some that I felt particularly burdened for as I prepared this. You see, I think in all reality, we're all the sum sometimes. We all go through seasons where something that used to dazzle us in some ways gone cold to us. And so we don't feel the, the affections for the glories of grace that we once did. And we look on and we think, you know what, I, I want to abandon in proclamation, I want to abandon in pursuit, I want to abandon in praise, but something's Something's changed somewhere and we're aware of it and we find it so difficult and so hard. Sometimes we can think, well, you know what, maybe, maybe then we're not Christians. Maybe that's what's happened and, that, and that's why we don't feel it. Well, then there's a lot of not Christians walking around. You're a Christian if you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's what makes you a Christian. 
But the truth is, as Christians, we can still grow cold to the glories of grace. So here's the question I want to answer then. What do you do when you find you've grown cold to the glories of grace? If you are confronted by this, what do you do to get out of it then? What do you do when you realize, I I used to be so passionate, but now I feel cold? What do you do? Well, here's the six things I want to go through and just give out there to you. Six things that have helped me personally. Six things that I've learned off others. I never have original thoughts. Sometimes I wish I did. Sometimes I think I have and then I wake up um, because I'm dreaming. I just don't have original thoughts, but I've learned things and been helped by many, many books, mostly by dead guys, that have helped me to ensure that when I grow cold, which I do, to the glories of grace, there's things you can do, means of grace, so that once again you feel then that abandoned in praise and you feel that abandoned in proclamation and you feel that abandoned in pursuit. So what do you do? Well, number, number one, first thing you do if that's you is number one, realize you can't change this alone and pray. Realize you can't change it alone. And pray. Hebrews 4 verse 14 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Now that verse is there because he knows you're going to have troubles. There are going to be times that you're going to need to be on the receiving end of grace and mercy. And folks, you need to understand if you've grown cold to the glories of grace, if you've grown cold to the glories of salvation, then you are in need of mercy and grace. You're in need of the Holy Spirit to once again open your eyes to the glories of Calvary. You're in need of the Holy Spirit, not only upon salvation, but each and every day of your lives to open the, op- the eyes of your heart so that you may see the glories of what he's really done day after day after day. So we don't begin by something that we go do. We begin by hitting our knees and saying, Lord, help me. Help me. Encounter me afresh through the Spirit of Jesus. Help me see again. So that's number one. Realize you can't change this alone and pray. Number two, study and meditate on what you are saved from. Study and meditate on, if you will, your old self and the situation that you were in. You see, I think this is something that in Christianity people don't think about enough. We move on. We forget what we were saved from. But that has a dramatic effect on our lives. See, Romans 3 verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody, every single individual has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We know that. And as Christians, we nod and say, yes, that was us. But we don't engage enough about the consequences of that. The consequences of being found in sin is that, number one, we are separated from God. Isaiah 59 says, but your iniquities have separated you from God. God in his holiness and us in our sinfulness 
God cannot just hang out with that. So in our sin, we are separated from God. And the Bible is clear as a secondary consequence. We will be separated from God, not only today, but one day for all eternity in hell. A very real place, not just an idea, but a genuine place. The ultimate, final, and irrevocable punishment of God. We need to think about that place. It's a place completely cut off from God's mercy and God's love and God's grace and God's favour. It's a place of complete aloneness. No friendships. No hanging out with anybody. Because friendships are a gift from God. Hell is devoid of gifts from God. It is a place where there is nothing to enjoy, nothing to look forward to. We do have one thing, memories. That's what we have, memories. And in the context of hell, it will be a place and it will be entertaining those memories, all the things we missed and our rejection of Christ forever and ever and ever. C.H. Spurgeon Talks, says the following about the inhabitants of hell. He says, They have no hope of dying, no hope of things coming to an end. They are forever and ever and ever lost. On every chin in hell there is written, Forever. In the fires the word forever always blazes. Oh, if I could tell you tonight that hell would one day be burned out and that those lost might be eventually saved, there would be a party in hell at the very thought of it. But cannot be for the inhabitants of hell are forever cast into darkness you know what as Christians we will never be truly grateful for something we take for granted and if we don't realize what we've been saved from we'll never be truly amazed if we don't realize the blindness that we were in and the consequences of that blindness, we'll never be truly amazed by our great salvation because we just won't get what we've really been saved from. So we have to study and meditate on what we were saved from when our hearts have grown cold to the glories of grace. So I want to encourage you, just a few practical thoughts on that. Locate and study passages in Scripture that relate to God's holiness and wrath. You'll find a number of them in the Old Testament. The Old Testament's good like that. So at the minute, I've been going through Exodus and Leviticus, and Numbers and Deuteronomy. You read a lot about the wrath of God and the consequences of sin. The holy fire that we're talking about that really was Christ. There were times when Israel sinned and the fire burned so, so brightly that it just came out from the cloud and just completely ruined people. Oh man, that's full on. That's the consequences of sin. It's... It's scary. The Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. It's a frightening thing. Well, that's what we were saved from. So locate and study passages in Scripture on God's holiness and wrath. A great book on it is by R.C. Sproul, Saved from What? Excellent book. If you're thinking, I remember I was about 18, growing up in a church, and I used to tell people I'm saved. And and I remember it it was very late in my school years, and they said, oh, what are you saved from? And I said, it's a great question. Um, I have no idea. And I generally had no idea. I'm just telling everybody I was saved. What do you say from? I, I don't know. But as a result, grace was always cheap to me. I was never amazed by grace. Because I didn't get what I was saved from. 
His grace was okay. Yeah, it's okay. Grace, lovely. What are you saved from? Don't know. Must be bad. But don't know. I'm serious. I just didn't know. That was one of the books that I read then. R.C. Sproul saved from what? And I encourage you as well, get hold of the works of J.C. Ryle and J.I. Packer and Wayne Grudem. J.C. Ryle has an excellent book on God's holiness, God's otherness. It's a complete separateness, how far above and beyond you he really is. It's a good thing. It's like, it's like basically going for a swim just under Niagara Falls and you just think, whoa, this thing could wipe me out in a flash. When you study God's holiness, it's like that. It makes God far bigger than we try and box him off. J.C. Ryle's holiness book, excellent book, but also J.R. Packer, Wayne Grudem, they have systematic theology books. So you can just read wrath, holiness, hell. Okay, I need to engage with those things. If your hearts have gone cold to the glories of grace, you must study and meditate on what you are saved from. That changes everything. You will find your heart warmed in new meshes when you realize what your story really was. Number three, study and meditate on Jesus' death on the cross. Study and meditate on Jesus' death on the cross. John Stott says it wonderfully He says, the cross is a blazing fire at which the flame of our love is kindled, but we have to get near enough to it for its sparks to fall on us. That is a beautiful picture. It is an exact reality. The cross is a blazing fire. It is. When we get near the cross, it will amaze us. When we gaze at Jesus, when we see what it really is to have his grace and his mercy and the wrath of God meet, the wrath that was meant to be on us, when we see his holiness and our sinfulness collide in the person and work of Jesus Christ at Calvary, it is a fire. It is something that will warm our hearts. But we have to get near enough to it to allow the sparks to fall on us. We'll never be passionate about something we take for granted. We will always take it for granted unless we get close Because when you get close, you realize that this is profound. And no one's then telling you, hey, do you fancy worshiping? You'll be on your knees like this blind man going, I can't believe it. Study and meditate on Jesus' death on the cross. A few practical recommendations again. Camp out in the books of Romans and Galatians. Just read them. And keep reading them. And soak yourself in these books. John Stott has excellent commentaries on that works. So if you just want something to go with it, then then buy it and get it. Now already some of you will be thinking, man, there's a lot of study in here. Um, You know, we've got to read some things. Yeah, that's right. And I don't apologize for that. And people say, oh, I struggle with reading. I understand that. Good news is when you became a Christian, you'd be given the mind of Christ. That'll really help. So start reading. Ask God for grace. And okay, well, Lord, I, I need to apply myself because I need to get back to the cross. I need to get back to the cross where the flames of you will grip my heart. So study. Camp out in the books of Romans and Galatians. Don't be afraid of technical terms, the ones that you all get scared of. I certainly get scared of at different times. So atonement, substitution, propitiation, the ones that we try and take out of our Bibles. Like, That's just really hard. I don't want to sing a song about propitiation. I don't know what it is. Here, find out what it is. Actually study it, find it. You can, you can work out what propitiation is in less than three minutes if you just Google it, okay? So we've got to actually spend time putting in these words and finding out because then you realize, man, that, that word is in the Bible real deliberately. 
Because there are no other words to explain. That's amazing. Yes, that's what we sing about it. So study it. Words like justification, redemption, reconciliation, salvation. Don't be scared by those things. Leon Morris has a wonderful book called The Atonement where he explains all of those terms. Get hold of it. I think it's on the bookshop. Get hold of it and start spending time in it. Listen, growth in understanding will always bring about growth in passion. It always will. The more you spend time with the Savior and you realize what he's done, the more you'll come away thinking, this is bigger than I ever thought. This is more amazing than I ever thought. So study them. I also want to encourage you to read and reread good books on the cross. Try and get a new book every year and try and reread an old book every year on the cross, main line into the cross. If you find you've gone cold to the gospel, massive clue, spend time looking at the cross. Oh, I haven't done that for a while. That's part of the reason. Spend time with him. It's a great book. So the Cross of Christ by John Stott, a profound book. I'll put all these on the blog site this week as well, so you know. The Disciplines of Grace by Jerry Bridges. The Power of the Cross of Christ by Charles Spurgeon. Profound book, well worth going. And Living the Cross-Centered Life by C.J. Mahaney. All of those books will help you to draw near to the cross. And if you have a daily commute, one of the things we've been chatting about as group leaders at different points is, you know what, if, the, if you have a daily commute, and that just you know, and many people do in Sydney, right? There can be like an hour and a half commute was, uh, sometimes, sometimes more. You know, an hour and a half? That's two messages. Praise God for that. So download messages about Jesus, about Christ and him crucified. One of the best gospel preachers I'm aware of is generally C.J. Mahaney. I've not been affected more on the cross than when I'm listening to him. So go on the main Sovereign Grace website, www.sovereigngraceministries.org and download everything that you can by C.J. Mahaney and listen to it and listen to it and listen to it. It will fill your soul because you realize the cross is simply incredible. Number four, the fourth thing that we can do when our hearts have grown cold to the glories of grace is study and meditate on justification and in particular, adoption. Study and meditate on justification and in particular, adoption. You know, last week we saw in John chapter 8 that when it comes to salvation, there's a great and a greater still. Do you remember that? There's a great. John 8 verse 34, we see the great justification. The fact that in salvation, God in his grace comes down the mine of our life. The fact that we are dead in our transgressions and sins and he grabs us and he saves us and he pulls us to the surface. We're set free. A people who are under the slavery of penalty and consequences and power of sin. He, he breaks us free from all those things and brings us to the surface. That's justification. It's just as if I'd never sinned. That's the way it works. And you'll be amazed by that as you study that. It's great. But there's a greater still. John 8 verse 35, the greater still is adoption. The fact that he's not only brought us up from the mine, but as he's got us to the top, he's then saying, you know what? And now you're my child. You're adopted. You who were once my enemy are now seated at my table where I'll care for you, where I'll never leave you or forsake you. I will love you. I will sing over you. I will delight in you all the days of your life. And when I call you home, you'll be adopted for all eternity. You won't just be a person or a number. You'll always be a son or a daughter. Study 
Adoption. For it is here, J.R. Packer says, in adoption, that we encounter the deepest insight into the greatness of God's love. I think he's right. When you realize you've not only been saved, but you've been adopted into the very family of God, and you grasp who your father is, but nowhere do we see more clearly then into the greatness of God's love. To be right with God, he says, the judge is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater still. So study justification. But study in particular adoption. Spend time looking at adoption. There's some wonderful books on the bookshop on adoption. Get them. Number five. Listen to and sing songs that focus on the gospel. This is real basic. But this can have a profound effect on our lives. Spending time listening to, to and singing songs that focus on the gospel. Listen, you may be a great singer. You may have this type of voice where you just think, man alive, you need to get on X Factor and just do the business. And, and some of you do think that. Um, and we're praying for you about that. There'll be others of you, there'll be others of you that just think, my voice sucks. Um, there'll be others of you that think your voice is great, but it does suck. You know, we, we, there's a whole range... There's a whole range of of, of voice capabilities in this room right now. But singing is a gift of grace. Singing is something given to us by God as a gift because singing, according to Colossians 3 verse 16, singing enables the word of God to dwell in us richly. It allows the word of God to be built into our lives. Singing enables songs with truth to be the theme tunes of our life. So here's my recommendation. Ensure then that those songs are gospel-centered songs, that you're singing about Jesus. See, I grew up on Delirious, and, so, and, and, and they were quite good, and, and Martin Smith, and so all I ever wanted to sing about was, I want to be a history maker in this town. That, that was my whole childhood. I'm just thinking, yeah, what do you want to do in your life? I want to be a history maker. What do you say from? No idea, but I want to be a history maker. You know, that, that was really what I got brought up on. I was clueless when it comes to the gospel, and I was legalistic, I was subjective, I was condemned. I had no idea when it came to the, the truths, the deep truths of the gospel. I wanted to be a history maker, but I kept running out of puff because I kept doing things wrong and then too, too condemned to do anything else. But when you listen to gospel-centered songs, it changes everything. So songs like this one, listen, Before the Throne of God Above, listen to these words. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue could bid me thence depart. No tongue can bid me thence depart. And so when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end. Of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied. To look on him and pardon me. To look on him and pardon me. Allow songs like that to define your life. Get them on in your car. If you, even if you've got a bad voice, sing them real loud. Just ask the kids to wear earphones. 
and crank them out. Because these truths, one of the reasons why Martin Luther wanted the church to sing and start spending time singing is because he knew singing is a gift that allows the Word of God to dwell in us richly. And so he was accused of you're getting people to sing themselves into your doctrines. He was saying, yeah. (laughs) That's exactly what I'm doing. So allow the gospel to, to be built into our lives through the gift of song. That song there, Before the Throne of God Above, is, is on the Songs for the Cross-Centered Life. Is that right? Songs for the Cross-Centered Life on the Sovereign Grace albums. Just, just get this stuff and feed your soul with it. Because when you're going through trials, you really don't want in that moment the theme tune that the only one you know about, I want to be a history maker. Not enough. But, oh, wondrous love that will not let me go. I cling to you with all my strength and soul. But if my hold will ever fail, your wondrous love will never let me go. They're my theme tunes. Build them into your lives. Number six, if you've gone cold, regularly review and reflect on your story. Regularly review and reflect on your specific good news story. C.J. Mahaney, in his book, Living the Cross-Centered Life, says many people today want to forget the past. The mistakes they've made and the sins they've committed aren't subjects they like to revisit. But for Christians, one of the best ways we can draw near the blazing fire of the cross is to remember the past. It should remind us of how marvelous God's salvation really is. Folks, don't forget your past. Actively remember it. And as you remember it, remember then the day that Jesus walked into your life. Regularly review it. Paul did. He's regularly, as you read his letters, he's saying, listen, oh yeah, I was a persecutor. I was a blasphemer. I was an idolater. He's very aware of the man he was. And it's that that then catapulted him into amazement of what God's done for him because he was so aware of who he was. So I want to encourage you, regularly remind yourself of who you are. Regularly remind yourself and review your gospel story. And don't stop your story here. You know, sometimes you ask people, say, tell me about your testimony. You say, yeah, well, I grew up in a Christian home and, and I put my hand up at a, at a camp and I became a Christian. I understand that. That's great. There's a lot more to your story. So I grew up in a Christian home. I was opposed to God in my sin. I was dead in my transgressions and sins. I didn't want for him, didn't love him, wasn't interested in him. I was wrecking my life. And then the story goes on. Tell the story. Tell the whole story. Tell it with theological truths attached to your story. And then actively and regularly review it. If not daily, I'd certainly encourage you weekly. Take time to walk down memory lane. Remember who you were. Remember what he's done. Remember who he's made you now and what he's given you. Remember what you deserved and then see with fresh eyes what he's given you. Remember it. Folks, good stories can and do have such a powerful and compelling effect on our lives, don't they? They affect us. They make a difference in our lives. And I think we so clearly see that in John chapter 9. For many people, that story compels. But for some, it confronts. And I think for all of us, if we're honest, we all have times, me certainly included, where we're part of the some. We've gone cold. 
We don't want to go cold. But we have. And we look around and we see everybody else is ecstatic about this. But I'm just not feeling it. Because I want to encourage you, when that happens to you, and if that has happened to you, if you are confronted by this, if you have grown cold to the glories of grace, then I want to encourage you, come back to the greatest story ever told. Come back to the gospel. Pray. Ask God for help. Study then and meditate on the gospel, remembering who you were and the consequences of your sin, remembering what he's done for you at Calvary and remembering the fruits of that, justification and in particular adoption. Sing then all about the gospel, allowing the glories of Calvary and the flame of the cross to spark on you and regularly review and reflect on your gospel story, what he really has done for you. And here's then what you can anticipate. You will be warmed again. He will warm your soul again. So come back to the cross and you will be warmed. Let's pray. Why don't we stand together, folks? Well, Lord, I do thank you for the power of this story. Lord, how kind, how how kind and how, how genius to put a story in your word that illustrates the very truth that you've just declared. Oh, Lord, would we marvel at your wisdom and the way you think and operate. Father, for all those that have been confronted, confronted by the fact that they're just not feeling this that they've moved away somehow at some point from the glories of the grace that you've given us oh Lord I pray for them Lord as they apply this message as they ensured as James tells us that they don't just see themselves in the mirror and then walk away and make no changes but they will see themselves in the mirror and make changes oh Lord when that occurs would you give them grace and that in abundance Lord, did you warm their souls afresh, amaze them afresh at all that you've done. Lord, you, you give us this message not to condemn. You give us this message to confront and care. Oh, Lord, would we feel that care? Because your grace truly is amazing. So, Lord, help us. Help us to live this every day of our lives. Would abandon then in proclamation and abandon in pursuit and abandon in praise be our themes. And when they're not, would we come back to the main thing, Christ and Him crucified. And in grace, would you warm us again. In Jesus' precious name.